Hi there, and welcome back to Out There, a cryptid podcast. I'm your host, Josh. Each week I will be coming out with a new episode focused on a cryptid that I find super fascinating and weird. And if you still don't know what a cryptid is, it is defined as an animal that has been claimed to exist but never proven to exist. Cryptids don't have to be supernatural or mythical beings, although many of them are. Some cryptids have actually become documented animals. Make sure you go and follow the podcast on Instagram, at OutThereCryptids, and check out the posts I make for each episode and maybe send some suggestions you'd like to hear. Today's episode is about one of the most famous cases of a possible alien abduction. A case that defies logic and makes you really wonder if these two people had an encounter with life forms from another world. There is no weird club segment today, just me. I am super excited to tell this story because it's crazy. So, let's dive in. September 19th. 1961, around 10.30 p.m. Betty and Barney Hill and their dog, Delcy, were driving home from a little vacation they took in Montreal and Niagara Falls in Canada. They were on U.S. Route 3, just south of Lancaster, New Hampshire, when something happened that would change their lives. Betty noticed a bright light in the sky. It moved just below the moon and above Jupiter. She saw that it looked different than the surrounding lights in the sky. As Barney was driving, Betty never took her eye off of it. At first, she thought it must have been a falling star, until she saw what direction it was going in. It was traveling upwards, and then it started moving erratically. And the light got brighter and brighter as it got bigger, closer and closer to them. Betty made Barney stop the car so they could get a better look. So, they pulled into a picnic area just south of Twin Mountain. They got out of the car, with Delcy, and grabbed their binoculars. Through the lens, she saw an odd-shaped craft with flashing, multicolored lights. Now, Betty's sister had seen something like this before, so Betty knew it had to be some kind of UFO. Barney looked into the binoculars and told her it was just a commercial airplane, until the craft reportedly descended in his direction. That's when he realized something was wrong. So they quickly ran back into the car and started driving away. They were along a narrow mountainous stretch of the road called Perconia Notch. They drove slowly so they could keep an eye on whatever the craft was doing, but it kept coming closer. It even flew over a restaurant and a signal tower. That is when they could get an estimate of the size. It was at least one and a half times the length of the granite cliff profile, which would mean it was about 40 feet long. She added that the object was rotating. At this point, the couple got back in the car and started driving home. But when they were about one mile south of Indian Head, the craft reportedly descended toward their vehicle. Barney slammed on the brakes in the middle of the empty highway. Then the object came about 80 feet above their car. It filled the entire field of view in the windshield. Barney decided that he must protect his family, so he gets out of the car with his pistol in his pocket and stares into the craft with binoculars. But when he does, he is shocked by the sight. Eight to eleven humanoid figures staring out of the craft's windows, looking at him. They were wearing glossy black uniforms and black capes. Now, here is where things get weird. Barney sees all but one figure move out of view, all in unison. The one that stayed, 
then started to communicate with him. He heard a voice in his head say, stay where you are and keep looking. Betty says that while all of this is happening, she sees red lights on what appeared to be bat wings come out of the side of the craft. And then a long structure comes out from the bottom of the craft. Barney had seen enough, so he ran back into the car and told Betty, they're going to capture us. Then the UFO flew directly over their vehicle and followed them. At this point, they were driving at a very high rate of speed. Betty was watching the object, and she rolled down her window and looked up. But then, all of a sudden, they heard a rhythmic series of beeping or buzzing sounds. And then the car vibrated, and a tingling sensation passed through their bodies. And then, their minds went blank. They remembered hearing those same sounds and having the same sensations for a second time. And when they gained their consciousness, they saw they were 35 miles south of where they remembered. Okay, so a little background on the Hills. They lived in a little New Hampshire town called Portsmouth. Barney worked for the United States Postal Service in town, and Betty was a social worker. They were very active members of the community. They were members of their local Unitarian congregation and the NAACP. Barney was on the local board of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. The Hills were an interracial couple, which at the time was particularly uncommon. Barney was black and Betty was white, but they explained that their relationship caused no notable problems with friends or family. They were very happy together. They took this little vacation because they had never gone on a honeymoon after being married for 16 years. They were always too busy working their jobs and working to improve the community and their country. I mean, Barney was working grueling night shifts at the post office, driving 60 miles each way. And Betty's job handling the statewide welfare cases was grueling in its own right, all the while being constant advocates in the community. They apparently left so impulsively, they didn't even have time to go to the bank before it closed for the weekend. So they left with less than $70 in their pockets and decided to make the most of it. And then... These little aliens came to ruin it. I'm kidding. Please don't abduct me. <laughs> Anyways, after getting back to their house around dawn the next day, they were still feeling odd sensations and impulses they couldn't really explain. Betty didn't want their luggage to come into the main part of the house, and even weirder, their watches were broken and would never work again. Barney noticed that the leather strap of the binoculars was torn but he couldn't remember how it happened. Even his best dress shoes he was wearing were scraped on the toes. They both took long showers and sat down and each drew a picture of what they had observed. Now, the one sketch that is available is in the Instagram post. It's unclear whose it is, but either way, it shows exactly what they described. Barney later described it as reminding him of a pancake, but the notes they wrote on the sketch reads, this is what it looked like when it was about 200 feet high, and it points to where the red lights were on the craft. Then the second one reads, this is what it looked like after shifting over highway, descending to about 100 feet over field. And then it shows the same object, but with the fins, which slid out from side with red light, according to the sketch. So at this point, the couple tries to reconstruct what happened to them and the chronological order of events. But right when they remember hearing the noises, their memories become incomplete and fragmented. 
Both of them were exhausted at this point. So they tried to get some sleep. But Betty wakes up because she has this strange urge to move her clothing and shoes she was wearing. But when she was looking at the dress, she sees it's torn at the hem, zipper, and lining. She also notices a pink powder on the dress. But when she hung up the dress, the powder blew away from the movement. The dress was irreparably damaged. So she threw it out. But then she changed her mind and just hung it up in a closet they didn't use. It's a good thing she did because over the next couple of years, that dress is one of the most compelling pieces of evidence in their case. It was analyzed chemically and forensically by five different laboratories. The other odd thing they noticed was that in the trunk of the card, they found concentric circles. And when they were experimenting, they got out a compass. When they put it close to the circles, it would go wild, rapidly spinning. But when they moved it away, even by a few inches, it would go back to being completely normal. They both knew they needed to tell someone of authority about what happened, but I mean, who do you call? It's not easy to say, hi, we were just abducted by aliens. There's no procedure to follow. So they thought it over for a couple days. Then on September 21st, Betty decided to call the Pease Air Force Base to report seeing the UFO. She was worried they would label her as crazy, so she withheld some details about the incident. Then the next day, a man named Major Paul W. Henderson called to ask for a more detailed interview. Then on the 26th of September, Henderson's report says that the Hills probably misidentified the planet Jupiter. The odd thing is that the ruling was later changed to optical condition, then inversion, and lastly, insufficient data. And since Project Blue Book was well underway, he forwarded the case over to them. Now, Betty was apparently an avid reader, so she went to the library and found a book about UFOs. It was written by a retired Marine Corps major named Donald E. Cahoe. Cahoe was also the head of the civilian group National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, or NICAP which we know from a lot of other cases we've covered, like Fresno Nightcrawlers and Niagara Falls Men in Black. But anyway, the same day that Henderson's first ruling came out, Betty decided to write to Kehoe for help. This time, she told the full story, including the details about the humanoid figures that Barney had observed through binoculars. She also brought up how they were thinking of trying hypnosis to help recall what had happened. So her letter made its way to a man named Walter N. Webb, who was a Boston astronomer and an NICAP member. On October 21st, the Hills and Webb have a six-hour-long meeting where they tell him every last detail they can remember. Barney talks about how it feels like he has some kind of mental block that keeps him from remembering everything. He then says all he can remember is the craft and the appearance of somehow not human figures on board. Webb believes that they were telling the truth and that the incident probably occurred exactly as reported, except for some minor uncertainties and technicalities that must be tolerated in such observances where human judgment is involved. For example, exact time, length of visibility, apparent size of object and occupants, distance, and height of object, etc. But all the while, Betty was having horrible nightmares that may hold the answers they are missing. The nightmares began about 10 days after the abduction. In November, she began writing down the details of her dreams. One dream began like this. 
Barney and herself were driving when they came to a stop. All of a sudden, men surrounded their car. She loses consciousness, but when she gets it back, she realizes she's being forced by two small men to walk in a forest at night. She can see Barney walking behind her, but when she called out for help, he didn't react. It looked like he was in some kind of trance. These men were anywhere between five foot to five foot four in height. They were wearing matching blue uniforms with capes similar to those worn by military cadets. They looked almost human because of their black hair, dark eyes, prominent noses, and blush lips. But the thing that stood out was their skin was a grayish color. Then Betty, Barney, and all of the men walked up a ramp into a round metallic craft. As soon as they got inside, Barney was split up from her. She was screaming and pulling away from the men so she could get back to Barney. That is when one of the men, whom she called the leader, told her that if she and Barney were examined together, it would take much longer to conduct the exams. So the couple was taken into separate rooms. Betty says that a new man came in. She calls this one the examiner. She notes that this one has a pleasant, calm manner. However, it seemed like English was not his first language because it was imperfect and she had a difficulty understanding him. Next, he performed tests on Betty. He said it was to note the differences between humans and the craft's occupants. So he sat her down in a chair and shined a bright light in her eye. Then he cut off some of Betty's hair, examined her eyes, ears, mouth, teeth, throat, and hands. He even trimmed her fingernails. Then he moved to her legs and feet. He used a dull knife similar to a letter opener to scrape some of her skin onto a thin, transparent material. This is when things turned. She sees a giant needle, and the man inserts it into her belly button. She screams in agonizing pain, but then the man waved his hand in front of her face, and she felt nothing, no pain whatsoever. The next part of the dream became a little less frightening. The examination was finished, and she began talking to the leader. She was able to walk around the room and look at things. She picked up a book with rows of strange symbols on it. The leader tells her she could keep it if she wanted. That's when she asked where they came from, and he pulled out a map covered in stars. But then, all of a sudden, something changed in his demeanor. He then started to escort Betty out. She was reunited with Barney, and the couple was taken off the ship. The leader took the book back from her, saying that they had decided that the other men did not want her to even remember the encounter. But Betty said that she would one day recall the events. So the Hills were taken to their car and watched the craft leave, and then began driving again. These dreams continued for five successive nights, but they stopped abruptly after those nights and never returned. Now, it's not made very clear, but from what I can piece together, it seems like this full dream didn't happen every night. It was like a new piece for those five days, which in the end put together this event. So moving along, after this first interview with the member of the NICAP, two more wanted to interview them. So in this interview, they pieced together the timeline of events. The drive should have been about four hours, but when the Hills got home the next morning, seven hours had passed. When the members of the team asked the Hills about why this was, they didn't have an explanation. 
Now, this is pretty common in UFO cases. It's called missing time, and a lot of people who have experiences with UFOs claim to have this same problem. Here's another thing they brought up in the interview. Remember how the couple talked about seeing the moon during the event? Well, on that day, apparently the moon had set earlier in the evening, meaning that they were looking at something else. Bright, even bright enough to make them think it was the moon. Hypnosis was again brought up to the couple, suggesting it might help. And in this interview, we find out that Barney is not too keen on what is going on. He calls Betty's dreams nonsense, but he does agree to the hypnosis because he thinks it'll help Betty. Now, I don't think we should judge him on this reaction because different people deal with trauma in different ways, and maybe he just wanted to forget about it and move on. Either way, this is basically the only time we see some kind of discrepancy in their relationship. In February of the next year, the Hills drove up to the White Mountains area many different times. This was the last place they remembered being, and they were hoping that driving along might cause them to remember things, but they were unsuccessful. It wasn't until September of 1965 were they able to locate the exact spot they called the capture site. So all this time, the Hills didn't publicize their events. They told the professionals who we've talked about so far, but that's it. No one in their town knew about what they claimed. So we can see that this was most likely not for fame or money. But anyway, March 3rd of 1963 was the first time they publicly talked about it. And it was with a group at their church. Barney at this point, was going to a psychiatrist for trauma-related issues. He liked and trusted this man. Barney asked about hypnosis, and Stevens, his doctor, sent the couple to a colleague of his in Boston named Benjamin Simon. But it wasn't until December 14th of that year that they meet him. They started out by doing pretty normal therapy sessions, but this was where Simon determined that the UFO encounter was causing Barney far more worry and anxiety than he was willing to admit, just as we suspected. <laughs> but Simon was not a believer in the extraterrestrial hypothesis, but it did seem obvious to him that the Hills genuinely thought they had witnessed a UFO with human-like occupants, and so he wanted to conduct the hypnosis test to see what he could uncover about their experience. Now, I did some research into hypnosis because, to be honest, I don't know how effective it is or where science stood in it being used. But apparently, it is very popular and widely used. It's not just for recovering memories. It's also used for addictions like smoking and sometimes even anxiety. I'm not sure what the thoughts were back in the 60s, but now it is a widely popular therapy method. But back to the story. Simon began using hypnosis therapy on the hills on January 4th of 1964, and this continued all the way up to June 6th of that same year. Barney and Betty were always separated so that they could not hear what the other one was saying, and every time Simon was done, he would reinstate amnesia, basically making sure they couldn't remember anything. Now, this is pretty normal because the brain works in mysterious ways and sometimes memories are hidden or compartmentalized because you simply cannot handle having to relive those memories because of the trauma. Obviously, this one is suggested that the beings on the craft did the memory wiping, but it's the same concept. Each session was recorded so that Simon could have them on file. A lot of the television shows that covered this case do have those recordings, actually, but 
Let's start with Barney, because we haven't heard much about the experience through his eyes. Barney remembers seeing the non-human figures and was very emotional about it. He says that because he was so scared he kept his eyes closed for much of the abduction and physical examination. He says the binocular strap broke when he was running from the UFO back to the car. Then he drove away, but he felt irresistibly compelled to pull off the road and drive into the woods. So he did. Then he remembers seeing six men standing in the dirt road. The car stopped and three of the men came towards them. They told Barney not to be afraid. He said that the leader told him to close his eyes. Barney said, I felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes. He goes on to describe the men generally the same as Betty. He says that the men stared into his eyes and he reported feeling terrified but mesmerized at the same time. Barney said, oh, those eyes, they're in my brain. And then I was told to close my eyes because I saw two eyes coming close to mine and I felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes. All I see are these eyes. I'm not even afraid that they're not connected to a body. They're just there. They're just up close to me, pressing against my eyes. He goes on to talk about how the couple was taken onto the ship and split up. He was told to lie down on a small rectangular exam table. Because he kept his eyes closed, it was less detailed than Betty's. But he remembers a cup-like device was placed over his genitals. Though he did not feel an orgasm, he thought that they had extracted a sperm sample from him. Then the men scraped his skin and took a lock of his hair and even looked into his mouth and ears. The next thing he remembers is the thin tube or cylinder being inserted into his anus and then quickly removed. He could feel someone counting the vertebrae on his spine. Barney said that he understood the people but realized their mouths weren't moving. He called it thought transference, which essentially means telepathy. But he also no noticed them speaking some kind of mumbled language he didn't recognize. Then he remembers being taken off the ship and into his car, where him and Betty watched the ship leave. Now, if you remember, in Betty's dreams, she said she had conversations with the leader, but Barney didn't have that same experience. They both did, however, say that they didn't remember seeing the being's mouths moving when they were communicating in English. But when it comes to Betty's hypnosis, it was very similar to her five dreams from before. There were a few differences. So one, the technology on the craft was different. Two, the short men differed significantly in physical appearance. Three, the sequential order of events differed. Betty was so emotional during her therapy sessions that one time Simon ended early because tears were flowing down her cheeks. But Simon was confident in saying that Betty and Barney's stories were consistent with one another. So once Betty had reached the star map part of her hypnosis, Simon suggested that she sketch a copy. When she was drawing what she could remember, it included 12 prominent stars connected by lines and three lesser ones that formed a distinctive triangle. There's a picture in the post, so check it out because it makes it much clearer to see. Anyways, she remembered that there were these lines connecting some stars. So the solid lines apparently formed trade routes, and the dotted lines showed the less traveled stars. At this point, Simon came up with a theory that we will disclose later on, during the possible explanations part. 
But either way, the hypnosis therapy worked, and Betty and Barney weren't tormented by abduction anxiety anymore. And so the couple went back to their normal lives. They did discuss their encounter with close friends and family, some, and sometimes even UFO researchers, but otherwise, they made no effort to seek publicity. Then, on October 25th of 1965, their story hit the front page news. The Boston Traveler headline read, UFO Chiller. Did they seize couple? John H. Luderell wrote the piece, and he had allegedly been given the audio recording of a lecture that the Hills gave back in 1963. And it wasn't even just that. He had obtained notes from confidential interviews that the Hills had given to UFO investigators, and he somehow knew that the couple had undergone hypnosis with Simon. The next day, the United Press International, or UPI, picked up the story as well and the Hills gained international fame. They became the first U.S. alien abduction to get this much attention. And then in 1966, an author named John G. Fuller was able to gain the trust and cooperation of the Hills and even Simon to write a book about the experience. It is titled The Interrupted Journey. The book includes sketches from Betty and Barney and other details that hadn't been shared. It was very popular and sold off the shelves very quickly. And that's basically the end of Betty and Barney Hill's story. Later on, Betty did say she saw many UFOs after her abduction, and she actually became a celebrity in the UFO community. Sadly, Barney died on February 25th, 1969, at the age of 46. Betty lived until the age of 85, but on October 17th of 2004, she passed away, having never remarried. Okay. So now we are going to talk about possible explanations, and there's basically two categories. One is that this really did happen, and the other is that it didn't happen. So let's start with maybe perhaps it didn't happen. Okay, so obviously there are a lot of people who thought this was all faked, but there is someone very prominent in the story that isn't too sure. Simon said that he still had reason to believe that Barney's recollection of the UFO encounter may have been inspired or influenced by Betty's dreams. He said it was the most reasonable and consistent explanation. Simon went on to write an article for the journal, Psychiatric Opinion, that explained his final conclusion as a singular psychological apparition. Now, I tried to get a formal definition of what that means, or if it was really a diagnosis. And I found nothing. But from what I understand, basically he is saying that their brains made up what happened. That kind of leads us to the first subsection, which is the Hills didn't intentionally make this up, but it wasn't real. For example, this case and story actually paved the path for a new understanding of human experience. A Harvard psychologist named Richard J. McNally explained that it's like this. The alien's abduction phenomenon, in my opinion, shows how sincere, non-psychotic individuals can develop beliefs about the false memories of incredible experiences that never happened. I mean, the human mind is still one of the biggest mysteries, because there are so many things that science doesn't even understand. There are many factors when trying to explain this alien abduction phenomenon, and two of which do fit into this case. Some psychiatrists suggest that this was all a hallucination brought on by the stress of being an interracial couple in the early 1960s United States. 
However, we know that the Hills talked about how they didn't have that problem because of how supportive their family and town was. Plus, Simon believed that their marital status had nothing to do with it. However, stress is a powerful thing that causes many other issues. But the next one makes a little more sense, I guess. So when it comes to undergoing hypnotic therapy, the brain becomes very susceptible to suggestion. Now, the couple came in with their original accounts of the incident, but when it comes to the amount of detail they remembered, it could have been false memories made up by Simon asking questions that could have led them to see that. This form of therapy is still under debate. There are some people, like the Hills, who find relief after. But like I mentioned, the brain creates false memories in normal everyday life, so it is especially vulnerable in hypnotic state. Then in 1990, another theory comes out. There was an article written by a man named Martin Kottmeyer that suggested that Barney's memories revealed under hypnosis might have been influenced by an episode of a sci-fi TV show that came out two weeks before Barney's first hypnotic session. The show was The Outer Limits, and the episode was The Bellero Shield. Now, the storyline of the show was similar to some aspects of their story, but not completely identical. Basically, the biggest piece of evidence that there is to connect these two is the fact that during one of Barney's sessions, he sketched what the aliens looked like. His sketch included wraparound eyes and bore a striking resemblance to the aliens in the TV show. Kottmeyer pointed out that Barney first described and drew the wraparound eyes during the hypnosis session dated 22 February 1964, and the Bellero Shield was first broadcast on February 10th of 1964. Only 12 days separated these two incidences. Then this article went on to point out another part of this explanation, which is that the Hills made it all up. Like I said, in the same article we were just talking about, Cottimer pointed out that some motifs of the Hill story were similar enough to a film that came out in 1953 called Invaders from Mars. And even apparently Barney's description of the non-human entities that he observed reveals significant similarities between the Biofrost Man and Barney's descriptive details. So this would lead people to believe that maybe there is something fishy going on. But that wasn't the end. A resident of the area where the Hills abduction supposedly took place produced a detailed analysis of their journey. Jim McDonald came up with a theory that the couple just misperceived an aircraft warning beacon on Cannon Mountain as a UFO. McDonald said that the size matches the description and so does the illuminating of the light. This would explain why the Hills thought it was appearing and disappearing. Then he said that the rest of the story was filled in due to stress, sleep deprivation, and false memories recovered under hypnosis. And in the same vein, Project Blue Book and the Air Force concluded that both targets were probably weather balloons. Now, I just have to say, I've never seen a weather balloon. I think it is so dumb that the government keeps trying to say UFOs are weather balloons. I mean, they better make up a better excuse because this one isn't working anymore. I mean... You can only cry weather balloon once or twice, and it's way past that number now. <laughs> but anyway, this theory proposed that maybe they did make it up, but it wasn't on purpose, and that it was just a misunderstanding. Then another theory that is pretty popular is that the Hills made it up for attention. So in the same vein, 
There aren't a lot of cold hard facts about this case, and there isn't a lot of clear hard evidence either. Then Betty's credibility was brought up. And truthfully, I, I don't really want to go into a lot of detail with it because I think that it's very unfair to, to put judgment on someone you don't know. But anyways, a journalist named Robert Schaefer wrote about an incident where Betty was presenting at the National UFO Conference in New York City in 1980. And apparently she was showing pictures of mostly blips, blurs, and blobs against a dark background, speaking of how these were UFOs that chased her car and whatnot. She talked for twice her allotted time, and many UFO experts and activists watched, which made her lose her credibility. This belief was furthered when she wrote a self-published book called A Common Sense Approach to UFOs. There are a lot of stories and incidents that seem too far-fetched to be reality. Betty believed that the UFOs are a new science, and our science cannot explain them. What I want to say is, yes, this is important to know and note, because credibility is an important part of these sightings and witnesses. But no one has any idea what she is going through. I mean, she had lost her husband, and at the conference, she was in her 60s. And then when this book came out, she was in her 70s. I think that before you make an assumption about her, keep that all in mind. Plus, what she said about the UFOs being a new science makes complete sense. And if you watch even just 10 minutes of an Ancient Aliens episode, you'd hear something much more ridiculous. There is a piece of evidence that falls somewhere in the middle between maybe it happened or maybe it didn't. It's the star map that Betty said the leader showed her. So in the post, you will find a recreated version of the sketch Betty made under hypnosis. A woman named Marjorie Fish read the book, Interpreted Journey, and wanted to see if the map really linked to any known stars. So she assumed that one of the 15 stars on the map must represent Earth's sun. From there, she was able to build a three-dimensional model of nearby sun-like stars using thread and beads. And it was a lot of trial and error, but eventually she figured out that the map was very similar from the viewpoint of the double star system, Zeta Reticuli. Now this was back in 1969, so not as much was known about space yet. The reason it falls in between is because over the years there were more and more holes pointed out in the theory. For example, a lot of the stars that were believed to be in the same map definitely could not be due to their distance or inability to hold life. So by the 90s, some people were ready to completely rule this out. But in light of recent understanding of stars and planets, it should be noted that some places believed to be unsustainable for life have changed. I don't think it is fair to rule it out because of how many things are unknown about space. But before I get into my theory, let's talk about how maybe this all really did happen. Let's start with the fact that this lines up with so many other abduction stories, especially being brought aboard an aircraft for an examination. And think about it this way. If any world government had an extraterrestrial alive, or even dead for that matter, they would definitely be experimenting on it. It makes complete sense. The best way to understand how something works is to study it, and if other life forms are wanting to know more about humans, of course they are going to do studies on us. I mean, we talked about how there is a theory that when Dwight D. Eisenhower had his emergency dental surgery, that he was meeting with aliens and agreed to let them study humans around America. But more specifically to the Hills, other than their stories matching up and extreme emotional trauma that both of them had, we have one major piece of evidence, Betty's dress. 
In an episode of Mysteries at the Museum, they showcased her dress, which is in the University of New Hampshire's Special Collections. Bill Ross is the head of the Special Collections, and he told a story about their abduction and showed off the dress. There are three major rips on the front of the dress. One by the left breast, one huge one at the bottom left, and two smaller ones in the middle. But the most interesting rips are to the zipper on the back of the dress, almost as if someone couldn't figure out how to work a zipper. But it's been part of their collection since 1961, and it's been studied five times by five different scientists. And the fifth time, and most recent time, was done by Dr. Phyllis Budinger. She has over 35 years of experience as an industrial chemist. She said, It's in my professional opinion that Betty Hill is telling the truth. She went on to say that the stains were caused by a mysterious substance she was unable to identify. However, she did determine it was made up of a natural component, like proteins and oils. And since it's found only on the dress's exterior, she believes it was deposited by an external source. She finished up by saying, I haven't found anything to disprove Betty Hill's story. Not a thing. Okay, so my theory. I think this did really happen. Is the fact that both of their stories lined up. Almost exactly. And it would make sense that Barney wouldn't remember as much, especially when he was so scared. Whereas Betty was maybe more enthralled with what they were doing. Either way... We don't know basically anything about aliens, and I think that's where all of this lies in, the fact that we don't know. So whatever anyone says to us, we kind of have to believe because they might have encountered something that we haven't. I do think, though, that over time, eventually, things will become more clear, and maybe Betty and Barney's Hill story will finally be recognized as the truth. But what do you think? Are aliens really out there? We are on Instagram, at OutThereCryptids, so make sure to follow us and tell us all of your thoughts on the cryptids we cover and what you'd like to hear next. It would mean a lot to us if you go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It's a great way for others to find the podcast and enjoy, just like you. This episode is written and hosted by me, Josh, with logo designed by Jason Sykes and theme music from purpleplanet.com.